Today's sermon text comes from Philippians 1, 21 through 30. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm going to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I do? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you, only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith in the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved in that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, everybody. It is good to be with you, especially on such a special Sunday, but as far as I'm concerned, it's always good to come back into this area. Uh, my roots are, are here. Uh, my wife and I, family, been living in Chicago area now for 35 years, where we've been involved in uh, planting churches and providing leadership for church planting for our denomination. But I actually grew up uh, a little bit north of here in Birmingham, uh, and this was back in the time when they were still spraying oil on the roads to keep the dust down in the summer. So that dates me just a little bit. Uh, Anyway, because uh, it's obviously changed a lot. So uh, both my wife and I are also grads of University of Michigan, so it's great to meet Robert Knuth uh, as well uh, today uh, as part of this whole celebration. But the main reason I guess I'm here today is because Steve and Mandy are being installed. Steve being installed here as they plant this church uh, in Sterling Heights. And Steve, it really is great uh, to be here with you and the family. This story kind of, it's really been an interesting story. Um, Three years ago, Steve came to the Church Planner Training Conference that we hosted in Orlando. And I got to know him there uh, a little bit and uh, liked him a lot and he applied to come to our assessment center so that he could plant a church uh, in the PCA. An assessment center is just what it is. It's where we assess or or vet our prospective church planters. And he made application to the assessment center. And after looking over all his materials and this sort of thing and getting a feel for for him, I called him back and said, no, not a good idea. Uh, Don't think that you have the, the, the track record the background, the experience needed to plant a church. And I knew that Steve was very deeply disappointed uh, in all that, but I was not really prepared for what he followed up with. After that, he said, oh, well, okay. Well, then will you teach me? 
Will you help me get the kind of training and experience that I need to plant a church someday? And I was like, well, yeah, okay, <laughs> let's do that. And so for the last several years, uh, Steve has been doing just that as I've uh, spent time with him. We've interacted a lot over the phone with his ministry out in Washington. And I have to tell you, over the years, I was so impressed with his love for Jesus, with his passion for the gospel, his teachable spirit. And it is really, truly a joy to now be here with him and Mandy and their family as they are installed here, planting this church in Sterling Heights. It's just wonderful. What a dynamic and wonderful family uh, they are. And Steve, not only am I impressed with those things with you, but you've got an awesome partner in this ministry. Mandy, you're just terrific in your own right. And I think you guys are gonna do really great in the Sterling Heights area. And so really this, when I thought of you, I thought of this morning, this text in Philippians is what came to mind. And it's for all of us, of course, here this morning, but I really just want to direct your attention to one verse. That's all we're really going to spend our time on uh, here. It's verse 27. And I think it really encapsulizes what I think uh, the gospel and the church is all about uh, here, why you're doing uh, what you're doing here with this. And it's, well, it's our denominational verse as well. So you might as well at least know that. Uh, so and I just want to focus your attention on verse 27. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. Before we look at that, let's pray once again. Let's pray. <clears throat> Our Father in heaven, we gather in this place and we compose ourselves before you to hear you speak to us, even as we have already spent a few minutes speaking to you in song and prayer. But as Pastor John prayed at the beginning, we ask that you would speak to us. Because when you speak, things happen. When you speak, worlds come into existence. When you speak, the dead are raised. When you speak, souls are saved. Speak to us, we pray this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you look at that one verse, you'll see that it is dominated by a concept known as the gospel. It is a verse that begins and ends with a reference to this gospel. Whether, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. It serves as sort of bookends to everything that is in that verse. And one of the first things we learn as we look at that verse is that it's all about the gospel. This is the nexus of our faith. Everything that we believe has its crossroads in and through the gospel. It is the centerpiece of what Christianity is all about. And this is simply the wonderful good news that God so loved the world 
that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. It's a good news that we recited just a few minutes ago from Romans 5.8, that God shows his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's what Paul lays out a little bit more fully in 1 Corinthians 15. He says this gospel is about the Christ who died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And then he began to appear to a whole bunch of people. This is the good news of the gospel. It's what God, when God saw the world in all of its troubles, all of its pain, all the chaos and violence and everything else going on, what was his response? What did he do about that? Well, he didn't send us a military deliverer. He didn't send us a doctor. He didn't send us a teacher. He didn't send us a politician. He sent us a savior who is Christ the Lord. And that's why on that Christmas night so long ago, the heavens literally ripped open. The angelic hosts began to sing praise because they knew what was happening. God had provided a solution at the deepest level possible for the problems of humanity and the travails of this world through his son, Jesus. That is the gospel. That is the good news that we come together and celebrate and remind ourselves of every single morning when we gather like this. But I think it's also significant to realize that this gospel is more than just news that we're supposed to hear and just even acknowledge, say, yeah, that's, I've heard that, I understand that, that's really great, et cetera, et cetera. But what we need to also understand with that is that the gospel is described in multiple places as the power of God. For example, in Romans 1.16, the classic text, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. And it's amazing to me as you read through Paul's letters in particular, how often the word power and gospel go together. Now we have lots of different kinds of power in this world that we think about. I mean, we hear the phrase, money is power, and it is. In the scientific world, it's all about nuclear power, the most powerful force in the universe that we know of. There's all about assembling for ourselves political power. In this world of computers and technology, knowledge is power. And it goes on and on. There's military power, this sort of thing. In my day, we had phrases like power to the people. And there was the black power movement and this sort of thing. And it's always gone on. It's been this way as people try to bring the, the influence that they feel needs to be brought in for their lives or for our society. And all of these are legitimate forms of power. And they can be used for great good in this world and sometimes are. Or they can be used as they too often are for great evil as well. I would propose to you this morning that the most potent force in the universe, greater than all of these things, greater than even the Tesseract, if you want to go in that direction, the greatest power in the universe is the gospel. Because it is only the gospel that has the capacity to save and change a human soul. 
It is only the gospel that has the ability to save and change people's lives. And that is the singular reason I'm here this morning. It's the only reason I'm in the ministry. It's because I believe that. I feel like I've experienced that and I have seen that. And I think it's the testimony of Scripture. I think it's the testimony of history. It's the testimony of many of our lives. Just, I mean, you could pull out any number of uh, incidents in the, in the New Testament. Look at uh, Zacchaeus. In the New Testament, Luke 19, where you have this corrupt tax collector, this guy who is basically a businessman, but also uh, something of a government official as well. And he is corrupt, and he is selfish, and he is cruel, and he literally uses the power of Roman military to collect the taxes from his own people. So he's one of the most hated, despised people amongst Jews because he's turned his back on his people and is actually using the power of Rome to collect taxes from them. And as the Roman policy was, you can use our military power not only collect our taxes, but whatever you feel like you want and need for your own lifestyle. So here was a corrupt, selfish, government official businessman until he met Jesus. And when he met Jesus, his life was turned upside down. He was set free from himself and all of this lifestyle that he was in. And he stands up and declares after he has come to know Christ in his life, he says, I will repay everybody that I have cheated fourfold from everything I took from them. And I will give half of all that I own to the poor. That is the power of the gospel in people's lives. And if we're gonna see change at the fundamental levels of society, like in the business world or in politics or whatever, it will come as people encounter the power of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. You could pull out the, the story of the Gerasene demoniac, this, this poor, wretched man running around the countryside naked and he's possessed by, by demons and he's spreading terror and chaos wherever he goes as he is, is, is captured by the powers of darkness until he meets Jesus. And when he meets Jesus, he is set free. He comes back to himself. He's the person that God created him and now has redeemed him to be, and he's set free from this. If we're gonna see people set free from the demons in their lives, from, the, from their own self-destructive behaviors, from addictions, whatever it might be, it's gonna come through the power of the gospel, which is designed to bring you back to the God who created you so that you become the person he created you to be and live life the way it was meant to be lived. We can look at Paul himself this religious legalist, this religious extremist who has gone off the deep end in his faith, you might say. And he's actually persecuting Christians to the death here because of what they believe and what they're propagating in this world. Here is a man consumed with re religious moralism, legalism, and this sort of thing until he meets Jesus. And Jesus sets him free and sets him free to a life of grace and sets him on a, on a path of life where he becomes the greatest apostle of this gospel that we have ever seen. 
We could go on and on. You could go through history and you could pull out a man like Augustine, who one of the most formative figures in the history of the church, for who years was looking for love in all the wrong places. For years was trying to find meaning and significance and to fill up this giant empty hole in his life, whether it was sex or alcohol or parties or whatever it might be. He was trying to fill his life and coming up empty every single time until he met Jesus. And Jesus set him free. And Jesus filled his life, changed his life. And this is the man who now tells us as it comes down through history, our hearts are restless, O Lord, until they find their rest in thee. This is what the gospel does. And it brings fullness of life. It fills the empty places of our lives. You can take a man like John Newton. Oh my goodness. What a personification of evil and selfishness this man was. This man who was a slave trader and who just made trip after trip from the west coast of Africa into the, to the Caribbean nations, bringing the slave trade here. And half of the people he brought would die in the holds of his wretched ships. But he didn't care as long as he got paid at the other end. A wretched, evil, selfish man until he met Jesus. And Jesus set him free, turned his life completely all around. He becomes a beloved pastor in England and gives us what might be the greatest hymn in the Christian faith, Amazing Grace. How great the sound that this grace would save a wretch like me. It goes on and on. Power of the gospel, even into our present day, our presbytery is very involved in ministry in Haiti, as Mackenzie will know. She's been there with us. And we've been involved for many, many years. And we just took a medical team there right after this recent uh, earthquake, and we were down there. And it was, I was just amazed. Not only, of course, impressed with the injuries and the destruction and everything going on, but as these Haitians met for worship every single night, hundreds and thousands of them, and we got to participate in their services. And there was a vibrancy and a joy that bears resilience in their lives. And I was just thrilled with that. Where does that come from? Where do people get that to face these kind of catastrophes where they've lost loved ones and lost their homes and everything else? It comes from the power of the gospel. And like I said a few minutes ago, that's why I'm here before you this morning. I was just reflecting this morning, actually, on this text and talked, mentioned this to Dan, that 50 years ago this day, that I knelt in my dorm room and asked Jesus to be my Savior. It was then that I finally had come to understand God's incredible love and grace towards me in Jesus. And I bowed and just prayed, Lord, do whatever you do when people bow before you and pray. I don't even know what lies I had. And God took the life of this, this fool 
and turned it around and has set me on a path that I just cannot stop giving thanks and praise to him for. And the only reason, again, I am before you all today is because I believe in my own life, I've experienced the amazing grace of God and Jesus and found identity and found purpose and found peace and found joy for living. And as, a, as one who used to be horrified about the, even the prospect of dying, that now look forward so much to seeing the face of Jesus someday. And one of the lessons I feel like I've learned is that you're never really ready to live until you're really ready to die. This is the power of the gospel for us. It is more than good news. It is the transforming grace in our lives. And when we have, those of us who have come to experience that, that what God does is he says, okay, here it is. Here's the gospel. It is the most powerful, potent force in the universe, greater than anything you can conceive, and it's yours. I'm putting it in your hands. And the way that the rest of the world will experience this gospel is through you. I don't have another plan B. This is just the way it's going to work. And we have that privilege then to be ambassadors of this grace. To be one beggar telling another beggar where to find the bread. And that leads us a little bit into the, the second part of what this text is all about. The second half of this message. Which is where he then says... Only, or whatever happens, it's in the Greek one word, only conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel. He says the only thing, okay, you Philippian Christians, or you folks in Detroit at Redeemer, there's one thing that really matters for all of you. The one thing I really want to see in you is that you conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel. So what does that mean? What does that look like? And there are actually all sorts of ways we could apply this. If for nothing else, it means that to conduct ourselves in this way is that we treat other people with the same grace and the same love that we've been treated with by God. While we were yet sinners, we didn't earn it, we didn't deserve it. It was free grace by God. He paid the price. Jesus suffered on the cross for our sins. He took our punishment upon himself. He died in our place. He did that at his own initiative. I never asked him to do that, but he did it and he did it for me. He did it for you. And now how can we be, if we have embraced Jesus, if we call him our Lord and our Savior, how can we then do anything but then go out into our homes and our neighborhoods and our workplaces and our schools and treat other people the same way we have been treated? That alone would demonstrate the power of the gospel. That alone would bring so much change and so much transformation to marriages. It would bring so much change to families. So much change to neighborhoods and to schools and to workplaces and on and on it goes. Just that alone would be radically transformative. But he goes beyond that, I think, even in this text. Even though that's part of what it is, we have to see how Paul himself applies it and interprets it. And this is where, for sake of context, Marcia read verse 21 and a couple more verses. This is where Paul I think gives us a good idea of what it means to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. 
He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, that will mean fruitful labor for me. Apparently then he has struggles with a choice. I didn't know he had a choice, but he's struggling with the choice uh, here. He says, I'm torn between the two. I desire to part and to be with Christ, for that is much better, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary. Bottom line is, Paul is sold out for Jesus because he has experienced the transforming grace of Christ. He is completely sold out for Jesus. One thing you see, we note about Paul as you read through the Acts and the epistles of Paul, one thing you'll note about Paul is he never stopped being excited about being saved. He never got over it, uh, you might say. Uh, in Acts, three different times, uh, he gets an opportunity to tell his testimony, to tell his story in, in various contexts, and he's only too happy to do so. So we get to hear it multiple times. Uh, you, you read his epistles and you pick this up. You pick up, for example, Ephesians chapter one, and that first chapter, he just kind of goes bonkers as he describes the amazing grace of God extended to him and to all of us, where basically he goes on in one extended sentence, which for us is like 14 verses. Uh, but for him, he broke every rule of grammar. He failed Greek 101 uh, here in this text because he, he just goes on with these run-on sentences. I can't believe that the God of the universe set me aside and set his love on me and, and called me to himself and freed me and forgave me of my sins and filled me with the Holy Spirit and sealed me for the future and gave me a hope for the future. He just goes on and on. He can't believe it. This is who I am. This is what I have. And therefore, for me to live is Christ. You see, for us to talk this, this way, for me to live is, is Christ, conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, that can sound really radical to people. It can sound foolish to people. You're just another religious nutcase uh, here. But if you have experienced the grace of God in your life and knows, know what it means to be forgiven of sin, to know what it means to be a child of the living God, to know that you have eternal life, that God is at work changing you into the person he created you to be in the first place, then nothing else will satisfy. This again is the energy behind our worship and why we sing songs when we come together in the mornings collectively to give thanks and praise to God and to remind us of who we are and what we have in Christ. And it's why we, we plant churches and we move out into our communities to serve and to love in the name of Jesus because of what Christ has meant to us. This is the nexus point of our lives, of our churches, of our ministries, the gospel itself. And what does that look like? Well, he concludes the text by saying, what I want to see here in this living in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, what I want to see is you all are striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. Literally, striving side by side. That's the literal translation. Side by side for the faith of the gospel. You see, for Paul, he's telling the Philippian Christians, as I believe he's telling us, not only is it a matter of all of you individually realizing who you are and what you have in Christ, 
this amazing grace that has saved us and is changing us uh, here. And that hopefully you are filled with wonder and joy with that. But more than that, I wanna see you coming together. You see, the gospel also has a unifying and energizing influence in our lives. And Paul is saying, I want to see this collective joy, this collective energy come together, and for all of you to be striving side by side for the faith of this gospel. Now, we can appreciate maybe a little bit of what he's trying to say when we look at, uh, dig deeper here, because Philippi is a very unique community different than most of the places that Paul went. It is not a Jewish place at all. As a matter of fact, we're told in Acts 16, when he went to Philippi, he couldn't really find any Jews. He had to go down to the riverside to find a few people washing clothes. It's not a Greek city, because the Greeks have been driven out. It was a Roman community. And it was not just a Roman community, it was a Roman military community. And that's because years earlier on the plains just outside of Philippi, one of the great climactic battles of history had happened. When the forces of Octavian, the general leading the Roman forces, came on down, and there he met the forces of Anthony and Cleopatra, and they had this big fight on the plains of Philippi. And the Romans came, when they marched in, they took over this little sleepy village of Philippi, and they set it up as their military headquarters. And after the battle, when they defeated Anthony and Cleopatra, and you know, Elizabeth Taylor goes back to... Cairo and, you know, the snake bites her and she dies, you know, whole thing. Uh, thing that When all that finally happens, the Romans just stayed put. And they set this up because this was the center from which they were going to control now the region. And so Paul knows that. And Paul is writing back to these Roman converts uh, here. And he uses, as commentators will tell us, a lot of Roman military terminology a lot of Roman military imagery as he communicates to them. And that's what he's doing in this verse, especially in the phrase striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. It's almost a phrase pulled out of the Roman military manual here. And what he's referencing here is the Roman military strategy that enabled them to conquer the known world. You see, it used to be that when you had battles back, you know, thousands of years ago, and you'd have a a big battle, you would gather all of your people and arm them and this sort of thing, and you would line up on this side of the valley. And then the other guys, the bad guys, whatever, they'd line up on this side of the valley, and they would all then run into the middle of the valley and have a really big fight. And whoever had the mostest and the biggest and the baddest guys would, would win. But, but the Romans had changed all that, and it actually had started with Alexander the Great, who developed a military strategy that he was using. Julius Caesar took it and refined it and turned it into what we now call the Roman phalanx. So if you've watched the movie, movie Gladiator, you've got some idea now what we're talking about uh, here. So the way the Romans changed the, the, the game was, is that all the bad guys that line up over here, you guys get to be the like the Goths and the Visigoths, okay? So that's who this half of the Rome is. You're the Goths and the Visigoths. This half of the Rome, you get to be the Romans, okay? So the Romans, they would come marching up to the edge of the valley. These guys, you got the Goths and Visigoths, land in the valley. But the Romans would start blowing horns. 
and beating drums. And you'd go into like a marching band routine. And you have all these lines crisscrossing and this sort of thing. And you guys are just kind of watching with kind of entertaining awe uh, at what's going on with the Romans. Never seen anything quite like this uh, before. But pretty soon you realize that the Romans are marching themselves into these giant boxes of men. And they're staggered all across the valley. And at a certain point, uh, the horns blow and all these shields come up and they're custom designed so they fit all the way around and overhead. They, they actually link up with one another. And then another sign, all these long pikes come out, all these long spears. And then they start to march across the valley. Here they come, chunk, chunk, chunk. Chunk, that's what you guys are doing uh, over here. You guys, again, you're watching this and you're like, well, I'm just doing what I've always done. First of all, we're gonna shoot all of our arrows uh, at the Romans. So the, the sky's filled with these clouds of arrows, which are doing no, no harm at all to the Romans behind their human tank uh, in effect. So then they start charging across the valley, you know, screaming and yelling, and they start mingling in amongst the, 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 the phalanxes here. And the Romans don't do a thing except keep marching. Even with all these people around them, hacking with their swords and everything else, they just keep marching, chunk, chunk, chunk. And then they stop, because the horns all stop and the drums stop, they stop. Then another set of horns blow, the shields come down, and they come out fighting and they absolutely wipe out enemy after enemy because no matter where the enemy is, they have found themselves, their army is broken up into pieces all across the valley and they have Romans coming at them from every direction. No matter where they are on the battlefield, they are surrounded by Romans. And what was the key military strategy? What had to happen is that there had to be absolute unity and discipline with the Roman troops. They had to literally have each other's back. They had to be side by side if they fought. And if any one of these particular phalanxes got scared at all these you know, people painted blue and, and hairy and all this st stuff that they were carrying with them, if they got scared and started to fight on their own, they could jeopardize the whole flank of the army. They had to fight together. They had to do whatever they did together. And if they did, and because they did, Paul is saying, right, they were invincible, right? Nobody can beat them, right? We all know that. We saw it with Anthony and Cleopatra. We're seeing it as they march across the forests of Gaul. We're seeing it as they move into Britain and everything else. It's the military strategy. Nobody can figure out how to beat. And what he's trying to tell the Christians, which you probably have figured out by now, is that, listen, guys, I don't want to just see you really excited about your faith. That's the starting point. That's wonderful. Hopefully you're there. But what I really want to see is all of you coming together. I want to see you striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. This gospel has a unifying and energizing aspect to it as well. And when you do that, you have nothing to fear. You really are going to be invincible. That's why he goes on to say, without being frightened in any way by your opposition. Why? Because now you have the God of the universe going before you. You carry the most powerful force in the universe. The only problem you're going to have is when you keep trying to do everything by yourself and nobody cooperates and nobody does stuff with each other because they just got to do it their way, whatever it might be. Find ways. Christians find ways to come together, to plant churches, to serve their communities, 
to make a difference in the name of Christ. And this is one of the other reasons you all are a community of believers, not just to come together in worship, but then to be equipped and sent out to serve the, the neighborhoods around you, to serve this city, to serve the metro area, to be planting churches and to make a difference for Christ. And if you hold together with the gospel as your nexus event and worship is the catalyzing part of that, there's really nothing can stop you. I mean, I go all over the country in the years I was leading peace, church planning for the PCA. And I go all over the country and everywhere I went, people would try to convince me that their, play, their place in the country was the toughest place to plant churches. No matter where I went. If I was out in California, like, oh no, you can't plant churches here. People are crazy out here. I hope there's nobody from California. But people are crazy out here. You know, it's full of fruits and nuts and this sort of thing. You can't get any traction. If you go to New England, you can't plant churches here because it's all burned over from, from years past, you know, kind of thing. You can't plant churches in the South because they all think they're saved and they're not saved. So you got to get them unsaved before you can get them saved. I never could figure that all out, but that's kind of what they would say. So so you can't, and it just goes on and on. Or Mormon Utah, you can't, and well, they actually had a good case uh, that that was a tough place to plant churches. The point is, the, the challenge is not the mission field. The challenge is not the mission field. It never has been. The challenge is whether Christians will work together. Whether Christians in their local communities and with other churches in this area, will they come together under the banner of Jesus through the power of the gospel to make a difference in a lost, rebellious, broken world that needs the gospel of Jesus so much. And I believe from this text, this is what Paul was calling the Philippians to. It's what he's calling Redeemer to. And I hope that this church will always be a force for the gospel. I pray that this church will not only be making an impact just even around this area and in this city, but there will be many more people like Steve coming down the pike. Steve and Mandy planting churches. There are so many communities, so many neighborhoods that need the gospel and that need a worshiping community that then themselves can go out and make a difference in their schools and their neighborhoods and their workplaces. So my exhortation to you this morning is simply this verse. Whatever happens, whatever you do, however else you guys get busy as a church and in your lives, only conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whenever I come and see you or only hear about you in absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we asked earlier that you would speak to us and I pray that that's exactly what happens now, that each of us would grapple with what your word says to us individually and here as a body of believers as well. Give us ears to hear, give us eyes to see, and give us hearts that will respond. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.